And turn with me, if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Luke's gospel today. Uh, chapter 17, we're going to look at verses 11 through 19. 11 through 19 together. And um, as we do that, um, I want to just set this up. You know, I know, I know a lot of us are, are now sick of the turkey, ready to move on to Christmas, but I want to briefly go back to that idea of Thanksgiving this morning. And I, I want to ask you this really basic question. That is, is Thanksgiving a holiday or a lifestyle? And maybe your answer is yes. But since Thursday, since that time with family and friends gathered around the table, I want to ask, what role has gratitude played in your life in the last 48 hours? Because I feel like Thanksgiving is kind of that holiday that gets the, the short end of the stick, right? As, as one of mine said, it's, isn't it just like the warm-up holiday for Christmas? But if you scan your thought pattern with me from Thursday to right now, what would be, ask this question for yourself, what would be the percentage of negative versus positive thoughts in your thinking? Just the last 48 hours. You know, I came across a study recently of something called the negativity bias. And that is that in all of us, I would say we have this sinful tendency uh, to think negative thoughts, to be stuck in negative ruts. And this study gave a couple of really interesting examples. One study, uh, researchers found that in a relationship, it typically takes five good interactions to cover over one negative interaction. They found on average we will work harder to avoid losing $100 negatively than we will to gain the same amount of money. Our mind can experience 100 good things in a day, but for some reason we fixate on that one bad thing, don't we? And here's where I'm going then this morning. You know, the holidays are now before us, the stress levels are increasing, emotions are running rampant. I wanna talk about what it means to live Thanksgiving as a lifestyle instead of just a day that we quickly move on from. And to do that, we're gonna read this story from Luke 17. Again, I'm gonna spend a little bit of time setting this up. And um, here's how this story goes. There were 10 men who had all this reason for complaint. And all 10 were, were going through something you and I can't imagine. In fact, we're gonna find Luke's gospel tells us they were lepers. And leprosy in this story at that time, it could have meant a number of different skin ailments, but if you were a leper in ancient times, you carried this stigma that your skin disease was a contagion. You were unclean. You, you, were, less, you were less than desirable to be around. And the issue wasn't so much physical debilitation. The issue was really social, spiritual, ostracized. So one day we're going to find Jesus is walking through Jerusalem, to Jerusalem and he comes across these 10 men and it's clear they've heard about his miracles, they've, they've heard of his signs and his wonders and so they get just close enough to Christ to beg him for mercy and as we open this up we're going to find um, Jesus not only shows a mercy but he heals every one of them of their disease but here's our lesson, here's the point this morning. After all of that goes down, only one of the 10 return. And only one of the 10 give thanks. So read this with me. We're going to read verses 11 through 19 of chapter 17 in Luke's gospel. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, that being Jesus. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. 
Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where were the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. You know, when I think back on Thanksgiving, I often think of that sort of quintessential 1600s picture of Plymouth Colony pilgrims gathered around by this feast to celebrate the fact that they were still alive. But it's actually just been in, in the last 160 years that we've actually kept this Thanksgiving as an official holiday, I realized this week. The idea started with George Washington in 1789, but it never really took root until President Lincoln in 1863 made a declaration that this nation would stop once a year on the fourth Thursday of every November to give thanks. But if you know your history, then you know that's kind of odd timing because that means Lincoln gave this proclamation right in the middle of the Civil War. A proclamation of thanksgiving in the midst of blood and death, and turmoil. Just picture that, a divided nation, sorrows rampant. And yet here Lincoln is, all about giving thanks. Look at what he wrote, look at this. He said, the year that is drawing towards its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. To these bounties which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come, others have been added which are so extraordinary in nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and even soften the heart which is habitually insensible to the ever-watchful providence of Almighty God. An attitude of gratitude for fruitful fields and healthful skies, it, it seems tone deaf, doesn't it? I mean, you're a nation at war. I think about our Holy Land and our current global situation and just last week on the, on the news, I... I heard of a spokesperson from Bethlehem saying essentially Christmas is canceled. Too much death and dying, suffering. Look at how Lincoln goes all in at the end of this, this note though. He says, these blessings are the gracious gifts of the highest God who while dealing with us in anger for her sins hath nevertheless remembered his mercy. You know, it seems to me Lincoln was onto something, Right? He had like a thousand reasons to complain and yet seeing God's mercy, he chose to give thanks instead. How does one dig that deep? Just think with me about our story in Luke's gospel. Let's put ourselves in the leper's skin for a minute. Imagine like the spiritual and social isolation that would come with years of that stigma. You're not allowed near the city walls, right? You've been relegated to the colonies outside the gates of your town. Every time you look at your face in the reflection of the water, you see disfigurement. You can't make money because society has pushed you to the side. Your life has literally been reduced to standing off at a distance, as our passage says. But now, after all these years of suffering and sorrow, you, you hear rumors of this man named Jesus walking your way. We're told he's somewhere between Samaria and Galilee on the road to Jerusalem, and you've heard this man is said to be divine. He brings healing. 
So you gather up your friends, all, all the misfits and the outcasts around you, and you, you go wait along this path, hoping to get a glimpse. And now you see this, this rumored savior off in the distance. You quickly get the group to your feet. You start screaming and waving your arms desperately, begging for his mercy, hoping, hoping he will hear you. But then it's kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? It's almost as if Jesus passes them off. Look again at what he said in verse 14. He shouts back, go show yourselves to the priests. Now that's an odd request, right? Like, I wonder if that's what these men were hoping for. This is the same Jesus who spat in mud, wiped it on someone's eyes, and healed the blind in the spot. This is the same man who looked at a blind or a, a, a lame man and said, pick up your mat and walk. And yet now he tells these men, go show yourself to the priests. It's not exactly instant gratification. You know, priests to these men would have been seen as those who had already made their judgment. Priests really weren't in the, the healing business like that, right? They were more like gatekeepers. Their, their job was purity, to keep the temple pure, to, to make people pure by their sacrifices, to keep worship holy. And so really, the last thing they'd probably want in their presence is a leper. Look at this in Numbers 5, 1 through 3. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. See, in ancient Galilee, Samaria, to, to have this physical ailment was to really have like a manifestation of spiritual impurities. That's how you were seen. And now Christ tells these men to go back to the place where really they're not allowed. I mean, all you'd have to do is look at your hands to see, wait, what? This doesn't make sense. And yet, in their faith and in their desperation, all 10, every one of them, follow the command. And here's my favorite part. Our lesson tells us as they went, somewhere along the way, Jesus healed them. You know, it's been a week of hospitalizations at Spring Hill, kind of behind the scenes of the holidays, both expected and unexpected. We had a, a new baby this week, Mariah, who was joined our church just a few weeks ago. Uh, her and her husband just had a beautiful baby girl. But we also had uh, one down in uh, Utah. Terry Kelly was in a pretty rough accident uh, down in Salt Lake City, unplanned. We had a, uh, another stroke in the church, flight for life, a couple of surgeries over the weekend. But it's odd, every phone call that I made on the other end of the line was the exact same attitude and outpouring of gratitude. This grateful heart of the doctors who had brought healing, there was this immediate acknowledgement that my life would not be the same had it not been for those EMTs, those police officers, and those doctors. Praise the Lord, everybody's okay. But this is a common practice, right? A hero saves a drowning man. What do you hear the victim say? I will forever owe my life to him. And so why is it that we have to ask, out of 10 people in this passage healed, only one man stops to say thanks? It doesn't make sense, does it? 
And here's something I think even more strange. It's not until this moment that Luke now reveals to us, this man is not just a leper, he's a Samaritan. Did you catch that? Look again at verse 16 with me. Now the man was a Samaritan out of nowhere we're given this news. That's two strikes. Like just set aside the, the, the skin issue for a minute. A Samaritan among these other men for a reader in first century Palestine, they would have understood this man to the Jewish faith was an outsider from birth. Samaritans were often seen as the enemy of God's people. In fact, some would have said they were the worst of the human race. The name Samaritan was used to identify a, a history when Israel had intermarried with non-believing people in the land of Samaria against the Lord's command. And so by that very name, you knew you were this offspring that didn't quite belong. You might remember as Nehemiah is trying to rebuild the wall, the, the famous wall of Jerusalem, it was Sanballat, the leader of Samaritans, trying to thwart his attempts. In the book of Joshua, we're told Samaria was the place of escape for the criminals who had violated Jewish law. So 10 lepers are healed, one only one comes back to give thanks, and he's a Samaritan of all things. Like this doesn't make sense. This is not the man you would wage your bets on. And yet what separates this man from the other nine isn't his cultural makeup. What separates him from the others is he's the only one that recognizes what God's done for him. And he's the only one who chooses to go back to a life of gratitude. And what we find in this man's response, I think is a, a rubric then for how you and I take Thanksgiving from a day to a life. And here's three things I want us to notice about this man as we look through this together. First, he stops to see what God has done for him. First, he stops to see what God has done for him. He sees. Second, when he sees it, he praises God out loud. When he sees it, he praises God out loud. Third, in his praise, he gives his life to Christ. We're gonna look at those three things together this morning. First he sees, then he worships, and then he surrenders. He sees, he worships, and he surrenders. So let's break this down. First he sees. Let me just ask you, how often do you stop to take note of what God has done for you in your day? Like if you could kind of look at like patterns in your life, what kind of pattern exists whereby you intentionally stop to give thanks for what God has done for you? Maybe a better way to ask this would be, how do you perceive where God is moving? See, this man, he sees something the other nine apparently don't. You know, in Bozeman, Montana, like it's not a hard thing for us to, to give God thanks for what we see, right? Like anyone go out this weekend and, and hang out. A few weeks ago, I, I went out with Addie on a run along this creek. And as, I, as we went running together, every step I took, no joke, you could see trout sprinting up this street. The mountains are white. It's just cold enough for a nice crisp run. And I asked the question maybe many of you have asked, how can you not see and give thanks for what God has done? But what about those moments where it's more difficult to see the picture. You know, my senior year in high school, I 
had to have surgery on my foot. I, I was a cross country runner and I'd beat myself up pretty good by that point. And I remember um, the surgery was more painful than I thought it was gonna be. The recovery time was taking a lot longer than I wanted it to. And I felt like life was passing me by and soon enough, like, my grief turned to anger. And I remember going out, uh, hobbling out to lunch with my pastor at the time. I was sort of whining and going on about my hardships. And I remember mid-sentence, halfway through this, this complaint, uh, he just stopped me and he said, Ryan, I am so thankful for the sanctification that God's doing in your life right now. And I was like, that's not what I wanted to hear. <laughs> he went on to tell me, you know, do you realize that surgery is your healing? You realize that in, in your sitting, that's God teaching you patience, or do you not perceive it? Look again at our passage, verse 15. Then one of them, we're told, saw that he was healed. A lifetime of gratitude is seeing what God has done for us. As one commentator said so well, there's sight and then there's insight. This man not only sees that he's healed, he does an about face and returns the one that heals him. You know, I think it says something that he didn't return to the temple so the priest could declare him pure. He did, didn't show it off to his friends. No, he goes back to Jesus. This is a Christological statement. He knows Jesus is God and God has healed him. Really stop and ask this with me. How often do you look for the good that God is doing in your life? In the words of Lincoln, are you mindful that God is at work or are you prone to forget from which every blessing comes. Earlier this week, I was looking up Thanksgiving traditions around the table, and I came across this thought-provoking question that sort of messed with me all week. And it goes like this. What if tomorrow you woke up and everything you failed to give thanks for today was gone? Have you heard that one before? What if tomorrow, whatever you took for granted in life, suddenly disappeared? as I pondered that question, it sort of haunted me, right? Because as you think on that question, it reveals to you just how shallow the roots of gratitude are. And yet this man, he looks down at his hands and when he sees, he runs back to say thanks. Which brings us to our second point and that is not only does he see what God has done for him, but he can't help but worship out loud with praise. Verse 15 tells us, so he turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And notice this, this is not a passive reaction, right? This is not a quiet response. This is kind of a scene. He's, he's praising God out loud. He, he was first shouting for mercy. Now he's shouting with victory. I saw a video clip this week of a woman on a plane who stood up and started singing praises for the entire plane to hear. I feel like every week I turn on the news and there's a story about a woman on a plane lately. But she was so obnoxious about it, the flight attendant had to ask her to sit back down and that's not quite what I mean here. But throughout Luke's gospel, right, there, this, is, this is the response to every, nearly every miracle Jesus gives. Luke 18, Christ heals a blind man. We're told in verse 43, the crowds gave praise to God. 
Luke 7, Jesus raises a widow's son back to life. What do they do? They glorify the Lord to the entire countryside. Luke 11, Lazarus is raised from the dead. The onlookers can't help but praise the Lord. They're shouting aloud, Jesus, the Son of God. See, gratitude, it begins with us seeing what God has done and continues with our worship to him. You know, there's many reasons I think that we gather up in this place every week. We, we know God's worthy of the honor and the glory. We worship together because we know our hearts are encouraged, our faith is strengthened. But this Samaritan leper, he, he reminds us the root of our worship is gratitude. The reason we're here is because when we cried out to mercy, Jesus granted us salvation. You know, I feel like we live in a day and age where like, we're always thinking return on investment, right? Like, what am I gonna get out of this moment? Often we come to church with the same mentality. Like, maybe you're here to keep things right with the man upstairs, fire insurance, or maybe you go to church to settle your guilt. Maybe, maybe you're here to be filled up. But, but really, like, we worship, we worship not really about us, but we worship because of what Jesus has done. How does Paul say it? Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now here's what a life of gratitude looks like. First, we need to look for it. He sees. Then we bring our worship and our praise. We sit and soak with it. And here's my last point. A life of gratitude really is surrender to the one who saves us. Look again in verse 16. This leper, he's once lost and ostracized. He now falls at the face and the feet of Jesus. Just consider that. You know, think about that posture. When you stand and you sing praises, it's a posture of rejoicing. When you kneel in prayer, it's a posture of humility. But when you fall on your face, that's a posture of complete surrender to his will. See, and the way then to live a lifestyle of thanksgiving is, is not only acknowledging what God has done for our lives, but, but it's also then living in obedience to his calling. And that, at least for me, is the hardest part. How did one pastor say it? Look at this. He said this. I love this quote. He said, it's rare to find a person whose cup is overflowing that can thank God instead of complaining about the limited size of his mug. Now see, God's will is for us to rejoice in him. And yet far too often, our response to God's mercy is at best disregard and at worst complaint. It's this negative bias that creeps in. The Israelites are delivered from Egypt. Instead of savoring freedom, what do they do? They complain. Jesus feeds 4,000 people plus. But instead of worshiping and feasting, what do the religious leaders do? They, They grumble and gossip. And yet the Samaritan leper, he realizes who Jesus is. He he sees what he's done for him. And in this moment of recognition, he falls to his face. And so we come to the end of the lesson. You can imagine this man face down before the Lord. And Jesus begins asking him questions about not him, but the other nine. The other nine aren't even there. It's, It's almost as if these questions are less about them and maybe more about us. And Jesus asks him, were not all 10 cleansed? 
Where, where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? See, here's the application, I think. When you have nothing, as this leper did, in Christ, you realize you have everything. And you're healing, right? When everything wants to complain in us, we can still give thanks for what Jesus has done for us. We were lost, right? We were destitute, poor in spirit, ostracized, like that leper, begging for mercy in our sin. And what is this season about? Jesus came down, born in a manger, to bring you and I salvation. The question, I think, this this month, this year, is do we see it? Do we perceive it? Are we looking for it? When you find it, will we act on it? Let me make this really tangible and close this up. Three thoughts for us, three, three thoughts until next year's Thanksgiving comes around. One, what is one way that you can foster a habit of gratitude to Christ this year? How can you let the good vibes roll? Is it to set a reminder on your phone? You know, I learned this week, crazy, like it's funny how life slows down and you start learning random things. Did you know your phone, you can set an automation that is set up by proxy and location so that when you walk into your house, it can send you a text message? What would happen if you send a text message to yourself every time you walked in your house in the evening that just asked, what are you grateful for today? Or we're always taking pictures. What, what would happen if one time every day you tried to take a photo of gratitude, one thing that you were thankful for? Or a prayer journal, a gratitude blog. Just think about this. If we started now and went all the way to next Thanksgiving, we'd have some 365 things to give God thanks for and the turkey would be cold. <laughs> Here's your second thought. As you find those moments of gratitude, what does it look like, ask yourself this, to praise God for them in that place? Not to move on from them, but to, to sit with them, to meditate on what God has done for you, to practice giving thanks over and over again. This is how we get rid of our negativity bias. We create new pathways in our brains for thanksgiving. And third, here's my last thought. If gratitude is obedience, then what is one place in your life where you know you're living out of accord with God's word? And what steps need to be taken for you to live in righteousness and thanksgiving again? An attitude of gratitude. Pray with me, will you? And Lord, as we stop and we consider the works of your hands, what you have done for us in Jesus' name, the, the world around us, the salvation that we have, Lord, we are in awe. And you know, God, we could spend an, an eternity giving thanks to you for the, the many blessings that you have poured out on us, but we know even then we wouldn't add them all up. So God, we confess to you this morning that the moments of ingratitude, we confess to you that the places where we know Lord, we have not measured up to the, the holiness of Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, with grateful hearts that when we cry to mercy, when we cry out for you to save us, 
You have promised us by your word that our eternal healing is granted. So Lord, would you bless us and keep us this day? Lord, would you make us mindful all year long of what you have done for us? Would you help us to see it? Lord, would you help us to praise in it? And God, align our hearts, attune our lives to you. Lord, we surrender. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen.